all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Once again to another wonderful episode of the SLS cast. Yes, this is episode 185. And of course, this would therefore have to be the portable music keyboard edition of the SLS cast. Because it turns out that uh, the Yamaha Corporation, famous for their motorcycles as well as their pianos, actually made a portable music keyboard called the Yamaha PSR-185. And with that little bit of portable, portable? portable musical keyboard knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us once again from his now native-ish sunny California would be our resident Sony employee. Native by default, Tim. Whoa, that, that could be taken the wrong way, I suppose. Native by default, Tim. I guess you really don't want to ever be yes. introduced that way to somebody. Well, we could give you we could give you like a really hip moniker, right? Like NBD, right? So nobody has to know that it really stands for native by default. It just you know now you've got a rap name, or they think it's like no big dick. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I wasn't gonna say anything. So, so, do you miss me yet? Do you miss recording, looking at each other I, in you know, person? I, well, as we've done our little makeshift looking at each other now, we're, 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 testing, we're testing some technological waters out this evening, folks. We're, we're, we, we have totally piss-poor camera setups, but we're trying to webcam each other via Skype while we record. So, meanwhile, he has to look over to his left awkwardly. awkwardly. I have to look up towards the top of my monitors awkwardly. But we're going to try and keep this face-to-face thing action happening. Uh, actually, I am wondering if I scared you away after my ultra-drunkenly pool performance at the bar where we apparently almost got knifed or something. And then you and then you ran away and never called me again, and now you're back in California. Matt almost got us gang-banged by ruffians at a local pool hall. I would like to point out, though, that it all ended with hugs. Literally with hugs. It ended with hugs. Isn't that how I most gangbangs end with <laughs> hugs? Sometimes they're forced hugs, but... Yeah, maybe. We, need, we needed fluffers, though. <laughs> we didn't have the wrong gangbang. Speaking, speaking of fluffers, we did go to Howie's Tiki that night, where mm-hmm. I met up Matt after recording, and... I will say it's a very impressive place. So if you live in the spring Tomball Klein area, do check out Howie's Tiki. I don't know if you're doing plugs for him or not yet. No, no. I mean, I just love going there. And, uh, you know, um, if we ever get like, you know, big local following, then sure. I'll go tell him to, you know, hey, hook us up with some free drinks so we can plug you, you know. Does the plugging come before the hugging? Well, it depends on how intense the plugging was. You know, sometimes, sometimes you need, sometimes you need the extra cuddle time after. <laughs> All this just easily rolls off the tip of your tongue. It's kind of scary. <laughs> 100, 185 episodes in, dude. I think we can. I think I think we should be used to this by now. <laughs> well, okay. So, so the shanking knife gangbang thing. So uh, we met at Howie's. We uh, by the time I got there, I think Matt was two drinks deep or something like that. 
Yeah, at least. Yeah, I had a, I had a, I had a few drinks, but the night or the the uh, Howie's Tiki ended with Matt and I both enjoying a zombie. And for those of you who don't know what a zombie is, it's supposed to be like the drink, the last drink you have of the night, pretty much. They literally limit you to two. Um, and so Tim was kind enough to buy me one because I was broke. And he was like, no, no, I will get you one. And I'm like, well, thank you very much. And then he's like, I feel like playing pool. And I said, well, by God, let's go play some pool. <laughs> so we then went off to pub is that where we went it was an old haunt that i used to go to right before i moved out to la i used to go there play beer pong with friends and it was kind of a happening fun uh non-threatening place and i went there when i used to do a pool league 11 years ago and um i preferred going to an old joint called the fountainhead um to do my bar pool at the time so, yeah, it was interesting. So we went there and had a couple pictures of Ziegenbach because we were we were lamenting the fact that we enjoy Carbach. We enjoy St. Arnold, right? All local Texas beers only yes, found in not Texas. Not just Texas, Texas literally Houston area beers. And you can't get much more fucking domestic than your own fucking hometown. And yet they don't include those beers in the domestic beer prices. So uh, they they said that it was like Bud Light and Miller Light and Ziegenbach were our choices for domestic pitchers. And we went with Ziegenbach and then we, then we attempted to play pool and we started playing pool. I am not good at playing pool. I let Matt know, well, we played pool a couple times before. I'm not great at it. And so we're playing, and Matt's like, oh, back in the day when I used to be good at pool, and as it was nearing 2 a.m., closing time, I suppose, um, he was kind of showing up these trick shots. Not trick shots, but they were, what would you call them? Uh, test shots or practice shots? Oh, uh, drills. Drills. Just, just drills, just like a pool drill, right? And I was setting up this, this ultimate game. Uh, which is really just a pool drill, it, it, and it's called frustration. And the idea is that you set up a nine rack for the it's a visual or you know f- visual image in your head now. Um, so if you can picture a pool table, you put a nine ball rack, which looks like a small diamond, not a triangle, in the middle of the pool table. You take the remaining six balls and you literally just make them ducks. So you're just putting them right on the lip of the pocket so that they'll just fall right in. And you can, you start off with ball in hand, which means you can put the cue ball anywhere on the table. You have to knock all of the six balls in the pockets in first. Um, you can do you have six shots or less to do that, um, and you have to take your hardest shot. You can't scratch, you can't miss, and you can't touch the nine ball rack until after you've knocked all those six shots in. Then you get. 10 more shots, if you've done that successfully, you get 10 more shots. One to break the nine, and then again, sink nine shots and nine shots, or, nine balls and nine shots or less. Always have to take your hardest shot. So, and if, and if at any point you screw up, you gotta start over. And so the game is apt, or the drill, whatever, is aptly called frustration. And in my whole life, I've only ever done it one time. And this was back when I really did play and everything. And so I was trying to show Tim. I'm trying to. I'm just trying to set it up and show him. And these other guys who are actually hustlers, I would assume. Well, no, no, no. Well, there's still more build up to that. We're playing, and, and we're two pitchers in at this point. 
Matt is is taking the pitcher and drinking the beer, the Ziegenbach, from the pitcher itself. Because the guy was like, you can't pour it in the glass. I'm like, because he's just walking around. I'm like, hey, we're not done with that. And he's like, you have to finish it now. I was like, cool. He's like, you can't use the glass. I'm like, okay. So I just drank the rest of the pitcher because the guy was being a fucking douchebag. So he chugged that. And during this whole, uh, you know, this whole uh, drill that we were playing, I, I would hit one ball in and I wouldn't, I couldn't hit the second ball in. And I, I mean, I was just having fun. And so you have Matt on one side going, Man, when I used to play pool, I used to do this. And Matt, you know, whatever, you know, whatever you drink, as what you said, you, you can get a little boisterous and loud. And in no way was he threatening sounding whatsoever. He was just, we were just both having a good time. And I'm like, oh man, I after the first ball, I, you know, I really can't get it in, I suppose. And I can I can assume by how we were talking, if you were if you didn't know us, if you were there, because we were like literally the only two white guys in there i mean white as in the way we dress the way we spoke everything about us was super white if you didn't know us i could see how they thought we were trying to hustle them trying to get them to come over and 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 waste some money on us because of i don't know it just sounded like something that we would do back in the 50s and as every good pool shark knows, you should always start your hustle 12 minutes before the bar closes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, but I mean, yeah, like the dudes, okay. Now, I can't play pool very well anymore because I'm, I'm literally like, you know, 12 years out of practice or whatever. But, um, or I guess more like nine or 10 years out of practice. But um, I can still spot like all the signs of someone who's trying to play. Like one of the dudes who was there literally had like at best like a hundred and ten dollar graphite cue. So he's like sitting there like thinking he's badass shit. And even I can tell that when he was trying, and I could tell when he was trying, he wasn't all that good. And I'm, and then like you had this tray guy, and he comes in and he's using a house cue, and we're using house. So yeah, it was just I don't know. It was weird. So I don't know. Um. But I do remember, all I can remember is you going, yeah, all I can remember is the guys end up coming over, and I'm trying to explain how the game works, and they're like, no, there's some kind of trick. I'm like, guys, no, no. And meanwhile, you are just going, Matt, Matt, we got, Matt! I'm like, dude, what? Chill, it's okay, because, like, if people thought we would have looked like we were trying to hustle before, and then we get up and leave like that, they would have chased us into the parking lot. (laughs) So, um... Anyway, one would think so that. Eventually... Oh, go ahead. No, it's, that's okay. So I don't. I'm just curious when you saw the knife get pulled because I missed that part. Yeah, so I was walking away because it, things. I mean, once you start getting like three guys walking over and they all think think you're trying to fuck them over, many occasions that's a good time to leave. And so that was kind of my thinking to where they weren't going to chase us. They were they were out having a good time, but they were just acting super dumb and. So I started walking out. So I walked out towards, they have this front patio area. And I saw one of their cadre, somebody from their cadre, I suppose, pulls out a knife. And not just like a, I have a blade type of thing, but it it really felt like I was in the 1960s or 50s. Like a shark pulls out a switchblade. And it's actually a switchblade. And it's like, okay, well, we're leaving. And so, yeah, that's when I kind of went in. And Matt was hugging it out with... With his with fellow Trey, Trey, with Trey mates. Well, yeah, because once I finally got, because uh, they they were literally like, "You want to play three ball for some money?" And I'm like, "Fuck no!" <laughs> like, why not? It's like, "Cause I'm drunk." <laughs> 
I mean, I tried to explain it to him every which way I could. But eventually, eventually, all's well that ends well because they have finally figured out that it really was a pool drill and that it helped them. It helps teaches you English. It helps teaches you leave. Um, and so then they just wanted to learn the rest of the rules. And then we got hugs and then we left and Tim dropped me off and vowed to never, ever, ever get drunk with me again. <laughs> the silent prayer he prayed as he pulled away. Please don't invite me out again. Please don't invite me out again. Please don't. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, then we will move into the email box because apparently I don't know how to di distinguish between real email and spam and trash and just other general emails we get, you know, regarding the regarding the business side of things. And so I completely missed Caper Girl's Mel Caper Girl Mel's email from back on the second. <laughs> so in my tradition of replies in six weeks or less, here we go. Uh, the email, of course, was sent to the show at slscast.com. We have no other Twitter followers to speak of either, uh, but you can, uh, you two can follow us on Twitter at the slscast. So here we go. It says in the subject line, subjective question mark, four exclamation points, question mark, exclamation point. And then we have, hey guys, so first off, I wanted to say I laughed at Matt's correction of my use of subjective in my previous email. Don't worry, I got that it was coming out of a place of love and not being mean in any way. I was totally going to send you an email pretending to be all upset and vow never to listen again, but I thought I'll go easy on you. And the funny thing is, I originally wrote it as objective, then when I read it over before sending, I thought, hmm, not sure if that sounds right. Should have gone with my gut instinct, ha, -ha. Anyways, I'm so glad you both got some enjoyment out of New Waterford Girl. I figure if you scored it around 2.5 or more, then you at least half liked it. I agree that it's probably a bit dated by now, even though it was set in the 70s. There's probably a few references you may not have got, like, hey, what's the deal with going to Antigonish? This part always made me laugh because basically there were no hospitals equipped to handle births in Cape Breton at the time. Probably still isn't. So everyone got shipped to Antigonish on the mainland of Nova Scotia where there was one. I was born there. My friends were born there. Hence the reason for her smart idea to hop on a train out of there. I can't remember if that was as obvious through the movie or not. For me, I grew up in a small town with a population of about 1,700, and it doesn't even seem like there were that many people. And because there were about seven families that settled there, mine being one, I have lots of relatives in the area. Our neighbors on the left and right of my parents' house are my aunts and uncles, and next door to my aunt and uncle on the left was my grandparents. Never had to travel far to visit at Christmas, that's for sure. And on Halloween, when you knock on people's doors, most folks legit asked, Who's your father? <laughs> Who's your father? Before giving us candy, like they were wary of who they gave candy to. I don't know. Small towns. I'd like to recommend another Canadian movie if you haven't seen it yet. It's called Pontypool. The plot summary is short and sweet. A psychological thriller in which a deadly virus infects a small Ontario town. Mel. All right. Well, that is really cool. Uh, thank you so much for sending that to us and, and kind of giving us a window into true small-town Canadian life. So that takes care of Das email. And now, as you continue to look that stuff up, I have some news of the weird for you, sir. 
Bring it on. Is it the guy who vaped a ghost pepper chili? No, no. Uh, although it's interesting you mentioned vapors because um, from globalnews.ca, by way of Matthew Brown and the Associated Press, man dies after falling into acidic hot spring in Yellowstone National Park. Uh, this comes to us from Billings, Montana. The grisly death of a tourist who left a boardwalk and fell into a high-temperature acidic spring in Yellowstone National Park offers a sobering reminder that visitors need to follow park rules, park officials, and observers said. <laughs> I'm just going to stop here. Efforts to recover the body of Colin Nathaniel Scott, 23, of Portland, Oregon, were suspended on Wednesday after rangers determined there were no remains left in the hot spring. Yes, you heard that correct. So a dude wandered off the trail of his own volition, fell into a hot spring, and literally melted. Like... Dissolved. He's and dissolved it just steam. That's it. He's just vapors. That's all that's left of him. So basically you're saying if you ever wanted to murder somebody and hide the body, that's like the next step up. Like just totally get rid of the body, drive out to Yellowstone National Park, out yeah. to Jellystone. And they don't yeah. Yeah, good old Jellystone. Yeah, no, it's uh yeah, Yellowstone definitely. And actually all they say is the sentence here is is they halted the effort. Okay, actually, after Scott's sister reported the fall, rangers navigated over the highly fragile crust of the geyser basin to try to recover his body. They halted the effort, quote, due to the extreme nature and futility of it all, end quote, said park spokeswoman Charissa Reed, referring to the high temperature and, ex and acidic nature of the spring. So basically, um, it's boiling water flowing beneath a thin rock crust is where this particular section of geysers are. And then the acidic nature of the water just... So you literally turn into stew, and then the, the acid melts you away. Ooh. Guys, we are still a movie podcast. This is not 2020 or, or Nightline. That's right. And so now that we've wasted a lot of time, you want to get to the news? Sounds good. <laughs> Here we go, folks. It's... The news. <laughs> All right, so I have a trio of stories to start the news with, but fear not. They're very, very quick because they're just references real fast. Um, the first one is an article uh, from back on June 11th, and it's from avclub.com, and it comes to us by way of Gwen Inha I'm sorry, Gwen Inat, Becca James, Alex McCown, and John Teddy. And uh, it says, what the Chicagoland of Ferris Bueller's Day Off looks like 30 years later. And... I'm not going to go into it other than because it's just it's mainly a very visual article that shows you a whole bunch of locations um, that they that the movie was shot at and like the water tower and all that kind of stuff. So you can actually see that stuff and then uh, see what it looks like today in contrast. And it's really neat. Um, and they did that because Ferris Bueller turns 30 
this here. So check that out if you can. Again, avclub.com for that article. What the Chicagoland of Ferris Bueller's Day Off looks like 30 years later. Uh, next up, really, really quickly, it comes to us from newsarama.com by way of Newsarama staff. Animated Batman the Killing Joke to get limited theatrical release. Yes. Following its scheduled premiere at July's Comic-Con International San Diego, Warner Brothers and DC's R-rated Batman the Killing Joke animated adaptation will get a one-night-only theatrical release around the country courtesy of Fathom Events. The event will take place on Monday, July 25th, 2016 at 7.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. local time and will include special features such as an introduction by Mark Hamill who reprises his voiceover role as the Joker for the animated film. So, uh, tickets go on sale Friday, June 17th, which today is the 21st, a Monday, or it's actually a Tuesday because of uh, fun experiences there with Tim. (laughs) Uh, And the devil's itch. Um... So yeah, check that out if you're if you're interested in seeing that. And then finally, um, there is a wonderful article um, uh, from Variety.com, and it is comes to us by way of John Burlingame, and it is AFI honoree John Williams looks back on six decades of iconic themes, and so it's just talking. It's uh, talks about a lot of the stuff that he has been doing lately, as well as his massive career spanning all these wonderful films. And there was a uh, actually a um, another, the, and so he actually kind of let slip. I don't know if it was let slip or just decided to mention really quickly that he is beginning work. On Spielberg's, uh, he plans to begin work on Spielberg's next film, Ready Player One, in November. So we already now know uh, where Spielberg's working on his next film and who's doing the music for it and when the music's going to get started getting written. Uh, and he also did the music for Spielberg's The BFG, which will be coming out pretty soon. So uh, please, please check out this article. It's a really cool article. And the only thing that I really took from it that I thought was pertinent for our movie uh news was that he is going to be doing the stuff for ready player one and that is my little quick trio what do you got there tim take it away are you familiar at all with ready player one uh yes it is a uh it was what well, is a novel like pretty much all like it's about video games yeah, it is, right it's, yeah it's a video game thing it's but it's i want to say it's like dystopian not dystopian future, but in the future where you can actually play human avatars and stuff, kind of like set in the eighties, kind of yeah, but kind of like um, whatever that Gerard Butler movie was, where you can play as people. Like gamer, know. was it gamer? Maybe yeah. So yeah. I want to say it's kind of similar to that. Yeah, because I know uh, apparently in the book, I mean, I didn't know anything about it until I heard about this movie first. That it's filled, it's littered with Spielberg references. Like all of his movies are referenced in it. There's a bunch of Goonie stuff in it, and there's a lot of stuff about Jaws. I, I think Jaws, and especially uh, Back to the Future and the use of the DeLorean. And apparently, Spielberg went through the script, got rid of most of the Spielberg references, but kept in a handful. Because he didn't want to make a movie where he's just kind of revisiting all of his old movies. And so it'll be very interesting to see how, you know, how the Uber fans of Ready Player One actually relate to it. Because I think they are going to keep the DeLorean. Because I think the character drives around in it at some point or something like that. I don't know. So are you a fan of Ready Player One? People out there, let us know or let me know. Let me know if you're pissed 
and all the Spielberg references are cut out. But uh, my news, I'm going to do a deuce of news. Is that correct? A deuce a of deuce? news? Um, if by deuce you mean two news pieces, then yeah. Yeah. All right. So here's my deuce of news. <laughs> I, although, it's a, I guess a double news? New, I don't I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we don't use deuce because everybody's going to think you're taking a shit. Well, if deuce means two, I know. But how, like, how does it like you take trio, a deuce? I'm taking right? a when deuce. When you say trio, um, a, I would like. Say how do you know if you're going to take right? a shit? You know, you're going to take two shits. Like, how do you know two turds because, are going to come out of your because ass? Because deuce is usually the f- the functified way of saying number two, right? And when you go to the restroom, there's number one and number two. I don't know. I'm just going from the shit we did in second grade. Uh, whatever. Let's go ahead. Go ahead. All right. I I apologize for following up this piece of news with that, <laughs> but a passing. <laughs> uh, both of these uh, really just you piece. literally just used the word passing after say. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and more and more. Uh, more. Coming to us from tasteless phrasing. (laughs) All right, Uh. right, I'll do the lighter piece of news first. Both kind of, uh, in some way, linking linking to Star Trek. The first one pertaining to Asinar, or Axinar. Apparently all that mumbo-jumbo about Axinar not being slapped with a lawsuit was a lie in some way. (laughs) Um, This is according to treknews.net, and it says that Paramount CBS lawsuit against Axanar production continues. This came out on June 16th, and it says this. Despite support from J.J. Abrams and Star Trek Beyond director Justin Lin, the lawsuit between CBS and Paramount and fan film studio Axanar Productions lives on. The studio and its head, Alec Peters, were sued by Paramount late last year for violating Star Trek intellectual copyright laws while filming the studio's fan films, Prelude to Axanar and its sequel, Axanar. Plaintiffs CBS and Paramount told a California federal judge on Wednesday, June 15th, that they recognized that statements were made about the case, but the case remains pending. The studios were responding to a counterclaim made by Axanar Productions, where Axanar alleged that they have, among other things, a real and reasonable apprehension about facing litigation if they proceed with their fan productions and that the alleged infringed works were not actually copyrighted. Paramount and CBS denied these claims. Abrams and Lynn asserted at a fan event in May that the lawsuits was, quote, not an appropriate way to deal with the fans, end quote, and that it would be, quote, going away, end quote. However, it appears that claim wasn't entirely accurate. Now, to piggyback off that claim brings me to io9.com, the article J.J. Abrams kind of made the news that the Star Wars, uh, the Star Trek fan film lawsuit was ending, where it says this. In an in-depth profile about Star Trek fans and how the studio can win them back after Into Darkness, BuzzFeed revealed something interesting about J.J. Abrams' remarks at last month's Paramount-hosted Trek fan event, 
in which the director said Paramount's lawsuit to halt, uh, well, in which the director said that Paramount's lawsuit to halt the fan film was, quote, going away, end quote, mainly that Abrams seems to have ad-libbed them completely. As BuzzFeed notes, quote, a teleprompter over Abrams's shoulder then scrolled to an ominous direction, ad-lib pending lawsuit. But instead, the, mo- uh, the moderator, Adam Savage of Mythbusters fame, brought Lynn to the stage to fanfare and applause and started asking the filmmaker about what it was like to make a Star Trek movie. But rather than not saying something about the Axonar issue, Abrams then cut into Lynn's questions a few moments later with the following statement, which apparently he was making up on the fly. Quote, A few months back... There was a fan film, Axanar, that was getting made, and there was this lawsuit that happened between the studio and these fans, and Justin, I'll tell the story because he probably wouldn't, was sort of outraged by this as a longtime fan. We started talking about it and realized this was not an appropriate way to deal with the fans. The fans should be celebrating this thing. Fans of Star Trek are part of this world. So we went to the studio and pushed them to stop this lawsuit. And now within the next few weeks, it will be announced this is going away. And that fans would be able to continue working on their project. End all quotes there. Yeah, so, I mean, he didn't necessarily lie, but trying to make people feel better put on the spot while being put on the spot. Uh, Matt, do you have any comments, questions, concerns regarding Axanar news? No, I mean, <clears throat> I looked into that as well. And I mean, I guess um, it is kind of what it is in terms of what he said versus what really happened. But at the end of the day, um, the brakes have been put on the lawsuit, more or less. Until everything, until all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, the lawsuit still stands, but... Um, Things are in much much um, smoother now, as 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 opposed to being so combative from both sides. Um, I, I think everything will end up being okay. And I'll go ahead and wrap my Star Trek news by talking about the passing that we uh, recently had this past weekend uh, via CNN.com. Star Trek actor Anton Yelchin dies in freak car accident. This is written by Steve Visser and Karma Hassan, again from CNN. Um, And it says this, actor Anton Yelchin, 27, who played Chekhov in recent Star Trek movies, was killed in a freak accident early Sunday morning, police told CNN. Yelchin, who also acted in Light Crazy and Alpha Dog, died outside his home in Los Angeles, according to law enforcement. Yelchin stepped out of his car in the driveway of his Studio City home at around 1.10 a.m. when the car slid backwards and pinned him against a brick pillar and a security fence, causing trauma that led to his death, said Jennifer Hauser with the Los Angeles Police Department. Quote, the victim was on his way to meet his friends for a rehearsal, and when he didn't show up, his friends went to his house where they found him deceased by his car. It appears that he momentarily left his car, leaving it in the driveway. He was behind the vehicle when it rolled backward and pinned him to the brick pillar, causing the trauma that led to his death, end quote. Hauser says Yelchin's family was notified by the friends that found him 
She did not know whether the car was running when he was found. Uh, man, this is sad. I'm really, I, it's really sad to talk about this, to, you know, uh, to, I mean, not necessarily reporting it, but to tell this to you all that's listening to our show. Uh, he's a very talented guy, very a good actor. Uh, we've seen him in many of things that we both enjoyed, not only in Star Trek. I know Matt really liked the movie Odd Thomas. Uh, he comes out with like 20 movies a year. In fact, I, I think now, even though he just passed, he still has six or seven movies starring him that will be released in the next year or two. Yeah, it's just, it's sad. And he's another one that joined the 27 Club, unfortunately. Matt, I know you heard about this recently also, and you said something about the car, like he was driving a Jeep Cherokee or Jeep something Grand like Cherokee, that? Jeep Grand Cherokee, yeah. And all right, so <clears throat> Consumer Reports, you can actually go to YouTube and just Google Consumer Reports um, Clutch, or not Clutch, uh, Gear Shift. And they have a, they actually have like a three-minute video on it. And it turns out that the gear shift was changed back in 2012. Uh, they started doing this in various different models of cars. And by 2014, um, I want to say they at least started changing it. But unfortunately, one of his vehicle was not one of the models that had been changed yet. And when you shift into a gear, right, um, in an automatic vehicle, you're going to push the button that that depresses the lock on the gear shift itself and then you drop it into reverse and then neutral and then drive or what have you and you can feel it you know you can hear that click or you'll you'll feel the car as the transmission slides into each gear well in this one what it does is you just simply tap it back or tap it forward and so you get a little light right so when you tap it back you have to just keep tapping it back and then each one selects a gear so you don't actually feel the transmission slip into gear or not. And when you go to put the car into park, you have to then push it forward X amount of times, um, depending on how far you went back to get it all the way up. The thing is, is that a lot of the vehicles don't stop unless the door is opened. So if he inadvertently left it in reverse or neutral, thinking he had slid it into park, open the door real quick, then the car won't move because that that's the only safety left on the vehicle is if the door's open. Well, if he shuts the door and walks down to the mailbox, that thing's in gear. And that's what happened. It was either in neutral or in reverse and crushed him up against that pillar. And a big vehicle like that, even if it wasn't going very fast, I mean, it's still enough to, if it pins you, you're bleeding internally. You're, I mean, any number of things can happen, and with no one to help you, you would die, which is what seems to have happened. Anyways, all right, well, <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and end my news with these two, again, two very quick pieces uh, about sequels. I'm going to go with sequels this time. First up from FlickeringMyth.com by way of Gary Collinson. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 wraps production and confirmed for San Diego Comic-Con appearance. Yes, that's right. You can actually go to Facebook yourself 
and check out the video or you may come to this website here and check this article out and the video is posted as well and basically director james gunn has taken to facebook to share a video of himself and chris pratt announcing that filming has wrapped on next year's hotly anticipated marvel sequel guardians of the galaxy volume 2 as well as confirming that he'll be bringing the movie and the cast to san diego comic-con next month and for those of you who are wondering guardians of the galaxy 2 is scheduled for may 5th 2017 so if you'd like to check out that video again come here or go to facebook and search that for yourself and finally in the sequel world from the hollywood reporter or hollywoodreporter.com by way of paul bond and this was an exclusive for them as of june 9th mel gibson planning passion of the christ sequel Yes, that is correct. Braveheart screenwriter Randall Wallace says he is writing a follow-up to the biblical blockbuster that will focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, let's see. Mel Gibson and writer Randall Wallace are working on a sequel to The Passion of the Christ that will tell the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Wallace tells The Hollywood Reporter. Wallace, nominated for an Academy Award for scripting Gibson's 1995 Best Picture Oscar winner Braveheart, on Thursday reluctantly confirmed rumors that he has begun to write a script for a story about the resurrection, telling The Hollywood Reporter that the, ho- that the project is becoming too difficult to keep under wraps. Uh, Let's see here. Wallace was a religion major at Duke University and says the resurrection was a specialty of his. Quote, I always wanted to tell this story. The passion is the beginning, and there's a lot more story to tell, end quote. A rep for Gibson declined to comment on the filmmaker actor's involvement in a passion sequel. Now, please remember that um, the passion earned $612 million worldwide on a $30 million production budget and is basically the largest privately i mean you know one of the largest privately funded movies ever or independently funded movies ever so you can see and of course with things like heaven is real and the burgeoning film market that uh evangelicals are going for i'm sure everyone will run to this movie um i personally felt that when it came to the passion of the christ I thought it was a fantastic movie, um, mainly because a lot of people don't really understand what it was like to have gone through something like that, gone gone through a crucifixion. And so regardless of where you fall on the religious spectrum, I think that at least you get a better idea of just exactly how hard it was to have been crucified back then. And of course, the scourging and all that kind of stuff as well. And so having it shown in such a brutal fashion, I think at least can give people a better appreciation for when someone says, oh, he was crucified for your sins. Eh, Maybe now you can say, well, that was a little nicer than I, that was much more nicer of him than I thought it was going to be. So it is what it is. In terms of the sequel, though, dear God, um, (laughs) no pun intended. Uh, I don't know where the hell this can really go. Um, are I, they going to call it the passion, passion of the Christ, the deuce, <laughs> throw the deuce in there. I have no, I mean, exactly. I don't know what, it, maybe they're going to just call it the resurrection of the Christ, I suppose would be the only thing you could call it. But either way, I don't know. I mean, because I really think that that's something that I guess would be nice to be done well, as opposed to what you might see on whatever the christian equivalent of lifetime is because that's about the best 
quality you're getting in movies nowadays um, for that market. But um, I, I truly, you know, I, I just truly, I don't know where you can go with this. I, I thought The Passion was a great movie, um, and I'm glad it got made. But at the same time, that was 12 years ago. I don't know. Maybe Jim Caviezel's looking for work again, right? Person of interest is over, right? Did that, <laughs> that ended, I think, right? Wasn't, didn't that end? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, and, well, I that's just wonder with all the bad light Gibson has been in, if people will still flock to go see his movie, including even the ultra religious. I think that if any group is willing to, it's probably them, mainly because in terms of professional movie making, they, that group is, vastly underrepresented. And so I think that anyone who is willing to give it a, um, give it real filmmaking credibility and uh, bigger box office draw potential, I think even with, you know, his previous sense, I mean, what, what group should be better <laughs> postured to forgive right? Then, then the group that this movie would be made for. <laughs> I mean, they literally would have to be like uh, complete hypocrites to not forgive him and then not see. So that's going to be how they sell the movie, right? So it's like the resurrection coming in April 2018. You better come or you're a fucking hypocrite. <laughs> yeah. If you paid money to see War Room, you see this one twice. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, all right, so that's my news. Um, I can save the rest for another time or whatever and bring us home there, Tim. All right, uh, I'm going to end with my last three pieces of news. Uh, before I hit it, go into Spider-Man news, Matt, if you had to play the voice of Spider-Man, what would be your Spider-Man voice? If I had to play the voice of Spider-Man, I guess I'd probably try and amp up a little bit more my I guess just more like my regular speaking voice, just kind of, I just amp it up a little bit. So it's, you know, like, holy crap, my spider senses are tingling, right? So just kind of amp it up a little bit. Um, that, that'd be about it. Well, your Spider-Man voice kind of sound like you're acting in the porno of Spider-Man. Oh, well, I wasn't trying to do the porno Spider-Man unless, you know, holy crap, that's a lot of Ock arms there, Doc Ock. Does he, is that what they call uh, like multiple wait, wait. penises? Wait, we wouldn't be Doc Ock, right? Not not in a porn. Not in a porn. He wouldn't be. Doc. That's a whole lot of arms there, Dildo Ock. Doc Cock. Because Doc Cock would be better than Dildo Ock. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm just thinking this 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 guy who's got eight dildos coming out of his back, really long floppy dildos coming off of his back. Can you, you know? can you act that out no. some more? It's great watching you be able to do that because <laughs> you're actually like I can I can envision you. Well, you can see. I can me envision now. you, know you covered with dildos, me, so. just like flopping and. <laughs> that, well, they would have to be. They'd have to be like those. Like really long floppy dildos that get used in like the extreme anal penetration shit that you know people see in the what the fuck subreddits and shit. Yeah, that's what it have to be. <laughs> well, the assemblyblend.com. <laughs> Why Russian audiences hated Spider-Man in Captain America: Civil War. This is written by Corey. Chichizolo, and I'm going to skip down to where it starts talking about the Russian bits, because yes, ladies and gentlemen, Russian does get American movies, if you didn't know that. 
Russian audiences are reportedly very unhappy with the voice actor who dubbed Spider-Man in Russia. The actor apparently sounded extremely young, which ruined the coolness of Spidey and the ability for the audience to take the character seriously. The dubbed Spider-Man sounds as young as 10 years old, rather than a witty and wise-cracking teenager that Peter Parker is meant to be. This outrage and disappointment with Peter Parker's Russian dub has led to Russian audiences starting a petition on Change.org, urging the studio to change the voice actor for future installments of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. At the point of writing this story, the petition has garnered a total of 1,188 supporters out of the goal of 1,500 signatures. And as of right now on Change.org, where... If you can speak Russian, you can read this a lot better than I can, but I garnered from this the petition has closed. And out of 5,000 of supporters that they were trying to go for at this time, they have reached 4,700 supporters in hopes to keep this poor Russian 10-year-old from voicing Spider-Man from here on out. So hopefully he didn't sound like he was in porno, or we'd be in another Taiwanese boy band incident. It turns out Anthony Hopkins and Al Pacino made a movie together, which came out this year, at least in the UK, but none of us heard about it, and apparently nobody heard about it because it made, according to Variety, just 141 bucks at the British box office. This is written by Henry Chu, and it says that take two Oscar-winning actors, add five movie theaters, multiply by a buttload of negative reviews, and what do you get? An opening weekend of $141. Yes, $141 over three days. That's all that misconduct, a legal uh, thriller starring two of the most acclaimed actors alive today, Al Pacino and Anthony Hopkins, managed to rake in at the box office in Britain over the weekend, according to figures released by Rentrack Tuesday. The movie was shown at only five locations in Britain in theaters belonging to the real cinemas chain. Even so, its takings averaged less than 30 bucks per movie house, which translates to only three or four viewers at each of the five cinemas throughout the course of the entire weekend. The movie now appears to have been yanked from real cinemas lineup. The weekend's box office chart has topped by another newcomer, Warcraft Beginning, which took $5.28 million from 500 sites. To be fair, Misconduct, which cost $11 million, according to IMDb, made a similarly fleeting appearance on American screens in February. It pulled in about $15,000 during its opening weekend in the U.S., then sank without a trace after earning a total haul of about 24000 bucks In South Korea, by contrast, the film somehow drummed up more than $900,000 at the box office. And again, that was in South Korea. That goes to show that they'll flock to anything, even if it's uh, a really shitty thriller starring Al Pacino and Anthony Hopkins. I, mean, I don't know, man. It's kind of amazing that we're not, I mean, we love Al Pacino. We love Anthony Hopkins, but it, it's amazing how their names don't sell shit anymore or, or, or just the, you know, just the thrill of seeing both of them acting alongside one another doesn't draw us in. 
But then again, South Korea, man, they're all over that type of thing. So it's kind of, I think they're more caught up in names and advertisements uh, and all that jazz. But then lastly here for me, news-wise, holy crap, does China love the Warcraft movie via io9, written by James Whitbrook. Warcraft opened at the U.S. box office last week, a couple weeks ago now, amidst scathing critical reviews to a slim 24.4 million bucks. But it's a completely different story in the apparently Warcraft-mad China, where just after five days, the film has clinched the title of the largest foreign debut in Chinese history. As we said before, the Chinese audience for Warcraft is huge. They made up a good chunk of World of Warcraft's active subscriber base. In Blizzard's fantasy series has long been beloved in the country. That love combined with the fact that there's also been the Dragon Boat Festival holiday weekend in the country during Warcraft's release has seen the movie take in 1.56 million dollars in just five days. Well, how impressive is that? Well, not only does it make Warcraft the largest foreign film debut in China's history, that's more than Star Wars The Force Awakens and Batman v Superman did in their entire box office runs in China, which were 125.4 million and 95.8 million. It's not the first time a movie's Chinese success has bolstered a flailing U.S. box office, but this disparity is unprecedented. Looks like Warcraft 2, bigger, badder, and orkier, will be almost guaranteed after this. Holy shit. $156 million in five days in China. That's insane. Matt, what do you got to say about this? Well, it's not what I have to say. It's what uh, Jackie Chan has to say, actually. Uh, and this comes to us from HollywoodReporter.com by way of Patrick Brzezinski. Um, he, he, it says here, Jackie Chan, quote, Warcraft success in China scares the Americans, end quote. Um, or, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. I didn't read that properly. Jackie Chan, Warcraft success in China, quote, scares the Americans, end quote. Sorry about that. Uh, basically, uh, Hong Kong action star Jackie Chan extolled the Chinese film uh, industry's emerging market prowess at the Shanghai International Film Festival. And um, it's uh, he was there um, for the kickoff event for his namesake Jackie Chan Action Movie Week program that happens at the Shanghai International Film Festival. And he was saying that uh, China was overlooked as a, quote, nothing market for, end quote, for decades. Chan suggests that the world has come to see the country's entertainment sector in a very different light of late. He cited the phenomenal Chinese box office performance of, legendary's entertainment, of Legendary Entertainment's Warcraft as the evidence of the new order. Now, this was only two days after the movie came out, so the numbers are obviously not as much. He says, quote, Warcraft made 600 million RMB, that would be $91 million, in two days. This has scared the Americans. If we can make a film that earns $10 billion, or one point Five billion U.S. dollars. Then people from all over the world who study film will learn Chinese instead of us learning English. End quote. Um, well, here's the thing, though, is that Chinese box office has been growing, and according to this article, it says it's been growing at a rate of over thirty percent a year, uh, and that's done that for the past five years 
So it is conceivable that the film could get a $1.5 billion uh, domestic grocer for China, or Chinese domestic grocer, sometime over the next five to ten years. Um, and it wasn't clear whether or not he was saying they wanted $1.5 billion worldwide or $1.5 billion domestically, as far as what Charlie uh, Jackie Chan was referring to. But the thing is, is that while... I, I've been, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, China is definitely poised to become the largest individual market um, for film consumption, and that's scheduled to happen next year. I, that's fine. That's great. Good for them. However, virtually everything that they have done has been based off of what the Western culture has provided them, and that's not to say that we're better or that we're trying to influence them or that they haven't had their own amazing creativity and amazing twists on something. But this is um, using Warcraft as the basis for the argument of saying, well, this is the future is not necessarily the case. And it's kind of like, it, it, honestly, it's almost like their Star Wars. Um, because where we've had Star Wars inundated with us for the last 40 years they have had they've only been inundated with warcraft for you know uh for basically 12 years now and even still more to that point is warcraft is huge in china right here you've only got a couple million people that know about it and yet you're trying to get 300 million people to go to a movie well, there, you've easily got millions upon millions upon millions of people who want to play uh, or who play and, and, and they've, had, they've got entire theme parks dedicated to World of Warcraft in China. So, yeah, it'd be pretty easy to say that this particular movie ha is successful and will be way more successful there than it was here. And if it's good enough to get a, the to get a sequel made that American audiences will be able to partake in, cool. Is this the thing that says people should learn Chinese instead of English? I don't know. And even when the inevitable happens and China takes over uh, the thing, I kind of look forward to that happening mainly because I think it will finally provide the catalyst for putting the pressure on another country to sustain that growth and sustain that so that we can get better movies on our side again without having to depend on sequels forever and ever and ever. Um, so there you go. That was really a long way down. Holy shit. I like how you're about to call him Charlie Chan instead of Jackie Chan. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know. That was, that's, that's, that's good. That, that's definitely a positive. Anyway, so yeah, and I guess that's the end of the news, and now we can finally get to th three squared. Let's do that, folks. Here we go. It's three squared. <laughs> And this time on Three Squared, we are doing our favorite picks for villain songs from movies. Now, um, don't misunderstand. We're not talking about like Disney villains, right? Or necessarily from a musical per se, even though I guess that 
could have qualified. What we're talking about are movies that when the villains are either on camera, introduced, or do something with a particular song in the background that literally just conveys everything about that character to you, whether it be good, bad, whether it is a um, juxtaposition of some form or fashion, or even if it is irony, okay? Um, so you have like this villain with this really happy song, then it, it doesn't matter. It's the it's the kind of thing where you just, you are immortalized, or this villain is immortalized by this one particular song. Um, and so we have taken, and it's really hard, you be surprised at how hard it is because you can think of one maybe or two and i'm not and we stayed away from scores so we're not looking at you know imperial march or anything right i mean darth vader right that's that's too easy we're talking about actual songs um that have been done that you would have heard on the radio at some point i'm going to do this um in order of rank number one rank number two and rank number three these are all awesome picks as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <clears throat> of course, because, you know, I picked them, right? But I think these are just amazing. So coming to us all the way from Reservoir Dogs, the character, Mr. Blonde, played by the amazing Michael Madsen. He is the wonderful guy that that just tortures that poor poor policeman who really did nothing but just show up to his job that day. And if you remember the scene, and most everybody who's seen Reservoir Dogs knows the scene, if you remember this scene, and I'm not going to tell you what happens. I don't want you to, I want you to, I want you to go and see this movie if for some reason, I don't know what rock you've been under, uh, you need to go and see this movie if you haven't yet. And all of a sudden he asks, Mr. Blonde asked the policeman, he's like, hey, did you ever hear, you know, the, the 70s radio station? And so he turns on the radio, and there we go. And, of course, uh, my favorite comedian of all time is the DJ, uh, Stephen Wright. He's the DJ for the radio station. And he introduces the Steeler's Wheels uh, stuck in the middle with you. And then the scene commences. And... It completely embodies everything. When you see the scene played out with this song in the background, and then, of course, it it becomes the primary overlay, you are just left with your jaw dropped, going, what the hell am I watching? And yet, why am I still watching it? How can it be this riveting? And you both simultaneously are freaked out and amazed at the evil that is mr blonde um it's just oh my god so so good so good so yeah go back you can even just pull that up on youtube you can just watch that scene so i mean there is that next up we have jamie buffalo bill gum uh he's played by ted levine the song is goodbye horses by the band q lazarus and this of course is from silence of the lambs and everybody has probably seen the thing parodied by giant silent bob right where it's you know you got the penis tucking scene as you know uh, i'm so sexy do you find you know right and, and you see him backing up right 
You see, yeah, look, I see, I see Tim, he's smiling now. Because of what I'm witnessing, <laughs> what I can see. Hey, you said you wanted it to be awkward. Must be awkward, right? <laughs> I wasn't actually expecting you to tuck your penis and dance around your house. Yes, that's right, that's right. So pardon me if the if it sounds like I'm a little farther away. I'm backing away from the <laughs> As his kids are looking anyway. at him horrified behind him. <laughs> Why does your butt look like that? Dad, you have a worm out here coming out of your butt. <laughs> it's Captain Winky. All right, now we're that's wrong movie entirely. Anyway, all right, and so you hear this uh, song playing as he's going through this whole routine where he's setting himself up and he flicks the nipple ring and all this kind of shit, and it is definitely one of the creepiest things and you will only ever associate that song with silence of the lambs after you have seen silence of the lambs and you rewatch the scene and the funny thing is is that you generally don't hear that song uh, um played anywhere especially nowadays 20 some odd years later but wow is it just so powerful i mean just it really goes to show just how amazing um how amazingly important it is to pick the right music for your movie and not just in score. I mean, really understand your soundtrack, really know what kind of music you're pulling uh, that you're going for and everything. So, God, this is really great. Very haunting, really kind of encapsulates everything that you are looking for in a serial killer villain in this movie. Finally, lightening it up a little bit, but something that I think is equally fun and yet... Um, has a great kind of dose of irony comes to us from 1989's Batman where Jack Napier aka the Joker played by Jack Nicholson is going on a date uh with uh Kim Basinger's character of oh Jesus what is it who was her name Vicky Vale and so uh she doesn't know what's going on but uh Everybody ends up being gassed in the in the museum where she's supposed to be meeting what she, what she thinks is Bruce Wayne. And then in comes the Joker and his crew. And he's like, gentlemen, music. And so one of the guys is there, got a big boom box and hits the play button. And Party Man by Prince comes out. And um, it's just an amazing introduction to the character of the Joker uh, in terms of what he wants his persona to be seen as in public. And so it really just kind of creates this wonderful mood. Uh, it's goofy, it's crazy, it's fun, but at the same time, it's disturbingly violent and leads into another fantastic scene that immediately follows the end of the song being played when he sits down with Vicky Vale. So those are my picks, just outstanding picks for villains and their music. Uh, Mr. Blonde, played by Michael Madsen, the song Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel, from the film Reservoir Dogs. Jamie Buffalo Bill Gum, played by Ted Levine, in the, uh, the song is Goodbye Horses by the band Q Lazarus, uh, from Silence of the Lambs, and Joker, aka Jack Napier, or other way around, either one, it's fine, played by Jack Nicholson, the song Party Man by Prince from Batman 1989. What do you got there, Tim? I, okay, I chose, I just, I wanted to do this three squared uh, for a particular reason, because when I was a kid, I watched this Bruce Willis movie 
and it's not a very good Bruce Willis movie, especially when I go back and, well, when I went back and rewatched it last night, it's not a very good Bruce Willis movie at all. But as a kid, my dad got a new v, uh, VCR, and I think they just got HBO or something like that, and it was like 93, and he was really into recording movies and being able to watch them whenever the hell he wanted without having to go and spend 20-something bucks on a fucking VHS tape. And, and so this movie, I kind of watched it a, a lot whenever I was home alone, mainly because it was R-rated, uh, mainly also because it starred Sarah Jessica Parker as the babe, and I had... I had the hops for her back in the day whenever I first watched this movie. Uh, not so much now, but the movie that I am talking about is indeed Striking Distance from 1993, the rowdy Harrington film, directed film, uh, starring Bruce Willis as a police officer with the Pittsburgh Police Department. And uh, something happens. He, uh, he gets in trouble for... Basically, a good his old partner, played by Robert Pastorelli, gets a little bit nutty, and he starts beating up on somebody, and Bruce Willis's character, Detective Tom Hardy, testifies against him, and it basically sends his partner over the edge and kills himself, for the most part. Jumps off a bridge into, into water, into the river. The, the department decides to demote... Bruce Willis think you know they think he's not really fit to continue to be a detective they just really don't want him around so they just decide that he's better off doing uh, riverboat duty or whatever it's called so he becomes an alcoholic you know the classic early 90s Bruce Willis macho man always drinks scotch and whiskey all the time the joker the ladies man that type of guy and damn isn't he he, he makes riverboat patrolling badass in some way. I, I didn't realize the job was so exciting until Bruce Willis introduced me to riverboat policing in such a way to where I grew up wanting to be a riverboat police officer in Pittsburgh until I realized that it is boring as shit when you really look at it through real-life lens, not in Hollywood lens. Uh, but so uh, Bruce Willis, eventually Sarah Jessica Parker, plays Joe Chrisman, becomes his partner. All of a sudden, these murders start start happening again. And these murders, these murders were happening uh, back when he was on the police force, when he was a detective. That was the case he was working on, because what would happen, this killer would call him whenever the killer had a, uh, a girl in his clutches. She had him tied up, and he would play a song. And that song was Little Red Riding Hood by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Uh, and he would play the song as he is playing with a remote control police car. And that was the thing. You never saw the bad guy's face because it's a mystery. And you don't know who the real bad guy is until the end. And so it was kind of spooky seeing the car rolling around, the Little Red Riding Hood being played in the background and seeing the girl tied up, not knowing what was going to happen. And so that, that song always stuck in my head because I just thought the movie sucks, but the use of that song, the creepiness of that song, mixed in with a serial killer scenario trying to fuck with a police officer was just a great combination of, of really good 
filmmaking and, and, and actually a really good call in filmmaking, I should say. So that is why, and I'm talking about Little Red Riding Hood, the Little Red Riding Hood, the really kind of pedophile-feeling Little Red Riding Hood song that really puts the whole pedophilia in Little Red Riding Hood into perspective that much more. That is the song I'm talking about. So Striking Distance, the song Little Red Riding Hood, actually you can go on YouTube right now and uh, look it up. Little Red Riding Hood, Striking Distance, it should come up automatically. My number two, this is probably, I mean, this probably should be my number one, but I, I watched this film, Manhunter, for the first time months ago. And the use, I mean, man, the use of this song is, is bitching. Uh, Manhunter is basically the original Red Dragon movie. Red Dragon is the remake of Manhunter. Uh, it tells the story of police detective Will Graham, played by William Peterson, uh, as well as Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who in this movie is played by Brian Cox. Will Graham is hired to find the elusive Red Dragon serial murderer. But actually, in this movie, he is not the Red Dragon. He is the Tooth Fairy. And Will Graham is the former FBI profile who is hired to figure him out. Uh, the movie also stars Dennis Farana, Kim Greist, and Joan Allen. But the man who plays the Tooth Fairy, or the Red Dragon, is Tom Noonan, Francis Dollaride, and Tom Noonan is fucking awesome. Very much like uh, the guy, I forget his name, who plays Buffalo Bill. You see him, you automatically recognize him. He is good. He is ultra creepy. And at the end of the film, spoiler alert, big time spoiler, uh, spoiler alert here, at the end of the film, he has, again, another girl... He's about to kill her. She's tied up, and he puts on a song. This is the song he plays, again, before he kills somebody, is Inagata de Vida by Iron Butterfly. And if any of you know the song Inagata de Vida, which you should, it's a classic, the song gradually builds as it goes on. The, the, it, it intensifies, and by the ending, it just kind of builds up to this big crescendo where it, you know, it just pretty much explodes. The sound explodes. So he's doing this monologue to this woman uh, as, I think it's Kim Greist, as she's, about, or not Kim Greist, uh, Joan Allen, because uh, Joan Allen's character, Reba McLean, is, uh, is blind, so she can't see what the hell is going on until she does get tied up. And so you're feeling for this woman, and Inagata DeVita is playing, and Francis Dollarhide, Tom Noonan, is just about to like tear her apart. And as this is going on, the police finally figure out where the tooth fairy is hiding and the police are closing in. He lives out in the woods somewhere and they're getting out of their cars, going up to their house, kind of inspecting the grounds and the music is slowly building up and he's getting closer and closer to killing her. And the music's, you know, is, uh, is, is building up and they're still trying to make their way into the house. And you just don't know what the fuck is going to happen until, well, you just got to see the movie, I suppose. The song is great. It's an excellent use of building tension in the film by using a song that was previously produced, not for a film. Uh, and again, that was Inagata de Vida, or In the Garden of Eden, by Iron Butterfly. And that film came out in 1986, directed by Michael Mann. It's one of Michael Mann's best films. And then finally, a movie that, you know, for, it came out in 2011, but the use of this song... Orinoco Flow, Sail Away by Inya, 
was wonderful. Again, it's all about building up the tensity. Uh, in this case, it was more building up the eeriness and the creepiness. And that movie was The Girl in the Dragon Tattoo remake. And again, another killer played by Stellan Skarsgård, the character being Martin Vonger, or Vonger. Daniel Craig is Michael Bloomkiss. Rooney Mara is Elizabeth Salander. Uh, they both kind of band together to catch, not to catch, but to find this girl who has been missing uh, for 40 years or so. They've been, they're hired by her father, uh, played by Christopher Plummer, to, to find him, or to find her. Yeah, so at the end of the movie, big spoiler, kind of, when you're about to find out who the bad guy is, uh, Michael Bloomkist, Daniel Craig, is slowly going down the basement, and then all of a sudden, the Enya song comes up. I, God, I can't remember if he's going down the basement, or he's, if he's already, no, he's already tied up. He's been caught, and he's tied up, and he's coming to, and the Enya song, or in Coco, or in Oco Flow, however you pronounce it, comes on. And it's excellently executed. It is excellently used. Talk about super eeriness and creepiness. It just fucking works completely. And if you guys have never seen these movies, definitely watch Manhunter and the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. But please look up uh, my first pick from Striking Distance, the song Little Red Riding Hood by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Uh, again, Inagata De Vida by Iron Butterfly was used for 1986's Manhunter. And then finally, Enya's Orinoco Flow, Sail Away, 2011, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Awesome. All right. Well, we will be taking a detour and go over to Did It Age Well for next week, and we're going to be deciding whether or not Independence Day aged well. And uh, it actually coincides with uh, one of the movies we're going to be doing for next week. Uh, I think you might have a hint there. Anyway, I think without further ado, though, we shall go to the movies, shall we not? Please. All right, here we go, folks. It's the movies. All right, and this week's movies are The Conjuring 2 and Finding Dory. Yes, very much on the sequel trek this time. Where do you want to start, sir? Finding my time back. Uh, that's Finding Dory? Yeah, Finding Dory. <laughs> okay. Um, Finding Dory, 2016. Okay, it's the sequel to Finding Nemo. Um, all right. So here we go and we get the, uh, we, get, we, we get the backstory on Dory and find out, you know, where she was when she was a kid and all that kind of stuff. And that she has parents and she has to go and try and find them. Uh, and of course, um, turns out, uh, complications occur because she was actually from California. Um, and so she has to make it all the way across the Pacific Ocean in order to get there. And it's actually, um, like a marine world kind of a thing where they rehabilitate people or people, good God, they rehabilitate sea life and Send them back to the ocean, blah, blah, blah. Um, of course, Marlon and Nemo come along for the ride and whatever else. Um, this movie, 
It's a good movie. Um, I I can say I, that I really. Oh, I was going to give it a four, and now I just can't. All right, let me just sum this up for you. It's a good movie in terms of it being a sequel. The thing is, is that while it is a good movie, and it does have um, great animations and fun characters that are not related to the original cast, um, it just completely lacks the gravitas, to use a word that Tim likes to to go with um so i apologize for stealing that word if you were going to use it um but it completely lacks the gravitas that the first movie had you know it's going to end up okay you know that things are going to work out you know that it's fun and goofy you know that there are going to be divergent stories um and it's just you it's just everything is a foregone conclusion and so while um there's still a good story being told um it's more along the lines of a happy-go-lucky fairy tale rather than an engaging story that even if you could see a happy ending coming um really makes you work to believe that it's happening it's just there this time uh, I give this one 3.75 out of 5. Um, I wanted to give it 4, but um, it, I just can't truly say I really, really liked it. It is a good movie. It's a solid effort, but it's completely predictable, and it's just not quite the same. Go ahead, Tim. What do you got? In in the past, whenever uh, Finding Nemo came out, I hated on it a bit, Um for, I mean, because at the time, I didn't like the idea that Disney was making me cry a lot and making me feel certain feelings that I really didn't want to feel. And it wasn't until a, a handful of years after the first one came out that I revisited it and ended up really appreciating it more so. And I always knew that the animation was beautiful. Uh, the movie itself was well done. The characters are great. And the, the Finding Nemo is honestly a very special Disney Pixar film. I was looking forward to forward to Finding Dory uh, in, in a way. And I've ultimately I felt awfully disappointed. I don't think I laughed once. Maybe I smiled or chuckled a couple times. The the character, the new characters really weren't that great. We've seen them all kind of before. Um, and there is nothing amazing about the animation either. I thought you can see, you can see the ending from a mile away. You knew what was going to happen. You knew that it was going to be ultimately depressing because if it was, I, again, it would be following the same route of number of, a number of other, uh, Pixar films. But ultimately I think what really did this movie in for me was that, there were so many callbacks to the first movie and I'm not saying that it was every once in a while, but basically Marlin, the character, Nemo's father, he, I, I got sick and fucking tired of hearing him say, Oh no, here we go again. Oh no, this reminds me of last time. Oh, this, Oh man, Nemo, don't say that. This is what, that's what you said last time. And this started, Oh, that reef. Oh, watch out for that reef. Why do we always have to, Every time we come to that reef and something always happens, somebody gets lost every time we come to that reef. Do you mean the 
two times you came to that reef and somebody got lost over a span of one year? I must say, if it only happened one other time since the first time, it doesn't warrant saying every single time, because I'm pretty sure you come to the reef every so often when and nothing actually happens. I don't know, but it, it just kind of it, it hurt the movie quite a bit. Um, again, this could be one of those movies that I watch in a couple more years. Once I already, you know, I, I know I didn't care for it and it was a bit of a disappointment that maybe I will find more joy in it. I don't know. But right now I give this one two and a half out of five. Uh, I mean, there are, there are aspects of it that I did enjoy, but overall I just thought the movie was too ridiculous at times a little too over the top, especially like with the whales and with some of the things that, that Dory gets herself into. It's like they were relying on tropes, relying on what we already knew from the first movie. And I think they were just relying on all of our nostalgia to enjoy this one. So 2.5 out of 5 for me. Right on. Okay, well then that'll close us out here to The Conjuring 2. This, of course, is the sequel to The Conjuring, uh, 2013's Conjuring, and of course stars Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson, along with Francis O'Connor, Madison Wolf, Simon McMurney, and Franca Potente. Um, the Alright, so basically what we're looking at here is... Um, uh, it picks up a couple years after the first movie. And of course we're following the Warrens and this is after the uh, experience with the Amityville murders. And they are of course seeing some pushback in certain forms of the media and everything like that, but they still work for the church. Things are good for them overall. And yet poor Lorraine is seeing visions of young, of, of, of her love Ed dying and stuff. And, she wants to just kind of take it easy. And meanwhile, though, across the pond, as it were, another family is starting to be hijacked by haunting a haunted house and everything like that. Um, and so, reluctantly, the Warrens are taken over there, and uh, they have to ascertain whether or not it's legit, and if so, what they're going to do about it. Now, I thought that, for me overall... Um, I, I, I gotta say that, uh, I really feel like, um, The Conjuring 2, I want to say it's better than the first one for me. Um, let me think here. Let's see. So the first movie came out in 2013. And let's see here. It came out. So I'm going to try and look this up right quick. All right. So July of 2013. Yeah. Ah, episode 37. And we didn't publish our ratings back then. <laughs> so I don't know what I rated it back then. But I'm hoping that it was... I guess I'm hoping that that it was less than 4.25 because that's what I'm giving The Conjuring to, 4.25. Um, I think that the movie... People have... All, um, 
people have kind of come to expect the best from James Wan. And at the and what's what's interesting about this is because of course he did Saw, he's done The Conjuring, he's done Insidious, and so people are kind of like, "Oh, you're probably out of your bag of tricks." And what I thought was so engaging about this movie, and I went and saw it with some friends uh, at the theater, and of course that was probably a mistake, not because I went and saw it with the friends, but because the theater had a bunch of assholes in it. Um but even still, barring all that, the movie, like, I, you know, we love horror here. I'm a big fan of it and everything. And this movie literally made me jump twice. And not because of the jump scares. And that's what I love about the way James Wan does things. There are so few jump scares in these movies. But um, I actually still managed to jump twice. Oh, I was so disappointed in myself. I couldn't believe that I, I got gotten. But... And and um, that's actually where the extra quarter star comes from because I got to give the movie props. If it made me jump, then you know it's getting something. But um, what I really thought was so good about this was that I liked how they truly are trying to build the franchise out by getting it, by taking it from the Warrens' perspective and creating divergent storylines that tie against the major theme, which is the Warrens and their strength as a couple together. And so you're following their career. And yes, while the plot of the movie heavily relies on the haunting that's happening in this particular thing. So at the previous movie is the, this one home here, they're focusing on these poor, this poor girl who's really being kind of targeted by the demon in this movie. Um, it, and yet there's always some kind of slightly divergent thing. I just, the only thing that I don't like is that it focuses so much on Lorraine and her experience in terms of being the guiding influence on that. But even still, I like that they're creating kind of a core to the series as a backbone, which is the relationship of the Warrens. I think that's really cool. Um, also, there is a scene that they do in the movie where Patrick Wilson's character of Ed Warren can't look at the little girl while she is being. I guess, um, possessed by a demon. And so the scene is a, basically a recreation of what they have recorded in real life. And I mean, it's just really amazing to watch the cinematography in places that scene is done. And, um, and it's things like that. I mean, yes, there are some kind of like things in the movie that really make you kind of go, okay, let's get on with it already. But at the same time, there's also a lot of really cool um, things for people who are paying attention. Um, small spoiler uh, towards the end of the movie. So if you you know, it's not spoiling exactly the end of the movie, but I just small spoiler alert here. When the climax of the movie is happening, uh, the name of the demon is it, it plays an important role in it. And when it comes about that, you find out what it is. It's really interesting because there's a scene previously in the movie where uh, Lorraine is like just completely dragging, you know, just tearing up this Bible. Um, and you're like, what the hell's going on? Meanwhile, on the bookcase is the name that gets revealed. And it's just very well done. Uh, sitting there, it's seemingly random. And yet you're like, holy crap, what a great, what a great little clue! And so it's things like that that are sprinkled throughout the movie that really make it good. Not to mention, um, 
the fact that he is really good at drawing out. You think that that jump scare is coming. Oh, I'm prepared, I'm prepared. And he just drags it and drags it and drags that tension out. Um, honestly, the only difference between him and Hitchcock in this regard, uh, and only this regard, is that Hitchcock would never, ever, ever let that scare happen. Because for him, it was always about the tension. And when you release the tension, um, you've ruined the moment. James Wan will eventually give you that scare. Um, but it's he's definitely gotten very creative at stretching that tension out. And so those things are repeated throughout the movie. And I, I just really feel like it's coming together. Uh, it's not without its flaws. But at the end of the day, I think it was, um, I think it was a worthy successor. So I give it 4.25 out of 5. Well, 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 4.25 out of 5. I did enjoy this movie. Um, I will say that I had a shitty movie theater experience. I went to a local... I'm going to call them out. Pretty much the sound sucked, and everybody was talking... Like, sound like they were talking in a tin can, or kind of sound like they were replaying... If they, they were actually replaying the original tape that the Warrens had from their case files, and they were just using that as audio as if maybe the entire movie was recorded in the 70s and I don't know but it just sounded really bad and so it took me a little while to really get into the movie um probably a good 40 minutes to really get into the movie but with that being said when I got in the movie I really got into the movie and I think this is a very good sequel I actually like the first one better uh, I think the horror and the tension elements, the tense elements in the first one were executed better. Um, this one is just a good overall uh, story with good horror and uh, thriller, not thriller, but good horror, uh, horror elements uh, uh, implied or implemented. Um, my big, my main drawback with this movie, I suppose, is that the is 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 the uh, is the overall hamminess of the movie uh james wan every movie that you see of his it has an element of cheese to it you know whether it's the dialogue whether it's the characterizations or whether it's the acting but most of all it's the characters and the dialogue like this one like lorraine I can't take her seriously whatsoever. And what's funny, and it's not Vera Farmiga's fault whatsoever, if you go on YouTube and you watch the real Lorraine Warren give interviews, or you see her, that, uh, her giving people tours of their dungeon, their little museum they have, all their relics and stuff that they've kept, like the doll from Annabelle, she is very hammy, ultra-religious, and, oh, oh, war, oh, oh I, I, I had a husband, I, I had a vision of you, I had a premonition of your death. I really don't think you, and she dramatically, you know, she dramatically talks about this stuff. I had a premonition of your death. I, I, Ed, I really don't think we should do this, honey. I really don't think we should do this. And it's very hammy overall. But does that ruin the film? No, not at all. It fits in the, in the, in the, in the world, in the world that the film creates. And so ultimately it works. Uh, another thing that bothers me, and in a way, it, I think it's kind of the filmmakers just saying, this is a movie, we don't really believe this garbage really happened. Because uh, you get this whole element that you never see the right things, you know, that are really supposed to happen. So you kind of get the idea that the filmmakers knew, or maybe James Wan knew that, you know, these kids 
were faking it all. Therefore, you really, you know, they're, they're, therefore, during the entire movie, you have that doubt. You have that sense of doubt that all of this is not happening, that the reveal at the end is going to be that they're screwing around with us. But that never really truly comes into fruition, that feeling, because you have Lorraine having these visions of this evil nun and having these premonitions of her husband's death. And at the end, when it gets to the climax, I kind of jump to the next thing here, uh, you know, where, where the premonitions of his death really come to play character-wise, it never really pans out. And the movie just kind of ends in a really un, in, un, insatisf unsatisfactory way, in my opinion. And that really hurt the overall kind of closing out the movie. And what really bothers me is that they're planning on doing a Conjuring sequel about the evil nun. So, of course, they want to leave that open because the nun is coming back in some way. Um, so, overall, I thought it was a good movie, despite the historical inaccuracies and despite what I thought actually happened. It's a good movie. It's entertaining. And I am very much looking forward to seeing this movie again. And the reason why I decided to tell you guys about my, uh, that my, my experience at the movie theater was crappy is because I am giving this movie 3.5 out of 5. So it could have been a little bit uh, better than that, than what I'm giving it. So 3.5 out of 5, The Conjuring 2 for me. All right, so I believe that brings us to the end of the movie segment. Our movies for next week will be The Lobster and Independence Day Resurgence. Do you see you know, that little precursor I gave about our <laughs> did it age well? That's why. All right, so um, without further ado, I think it is now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, for our segment intros has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can also follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can also follow Tim on Twitter if you want to track him down on the info information superhighway feel free to do so as always you can always subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to patrick wilson i get to say this i would never abandon broadway i do not want to expand my horizons and do more film work no i fucked up the quote that's terrible he says i do want to expand my horizons and do more film work but i'm interested in good roles wherever they may be i will always come back even if i went to la for a job i refuse to acknowledge the gap between theater and film i want to do both on both quote coasts so i will unless i never get a job again in which case i'll go back to my first career choice chimney sweep take care cinephiles we'll talk at you again next week Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>